Acts chapter 6. Uh, you may, may remember on Mother's Day, we you know, moved forward a little bit to Acts chapter 9 and looked at uh, a lady by the name of Tabitha. Uh, Tabitha seems a much kinder name than Dorcas, uh, so I prefer to call her Tabitha rather than her Greek name. But anyway, um, so today we're kind of going back and filling in that gap a little bit, what took place since then. And uh, Acts chapter 6 is very appropriate. The purpose of Memorial Day is to honor the memory of those who died while in service uh, to the United States Armed Forces. So today we're actually looking at a man who gave his life while serving uh, the Lord Jesus and serving for his kingdom. So very appropriate uh, this weekend. He is actually um, noted for being the first Christian martyr, uh, the very first person to be martyred for their faith. By the way, the word martyr uh, comes from the Greek word martus, and it literally means witness. Uh, so the idea here is that in his death, he has uh, continued to be a witness uh, for the Lord. So we're going to be looking at at the man named Stephen uh, this morning. So one of the reasons um, that, that we do observe Memorial Day is to make sure that we never forget those who made the ultimate sacrifice of giving their lives for our freedom in the United States. And in comparison, God honors those like Stephen who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. So, in fact, we read about it in Revelation chapter 10, verse, uh, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, do not fear any of those things which are about to, to, you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. What an incredible passage just reminding that those who have died in, in defense of their faith and without, without wavering and without backing down on the screen, there's two crowns I want you to pay attention to. There's, there's two Greek words in the New Testament that are translated crown. One is called diadema. The other is uh, Stephanos. And those two Greek words are two very different types of crowns. Even though they're translated, we just read the word crown uh, in our English. You know, we, we, we may miss what's happening here. The diadem in English, diadem, diadema is Greek, is the, is the royal crown. The royal crown is something that's inherited. So if you think about uh, King Charles III, what did he do? He inherited a crown. Uh, he inherited the crown. It wasn't something that he worked for. It wasn't something that he earned. It was, it was something he inherited. That's the, that's the diadem. That's the royal crown. In comparison, the Stephanus is the victor's crown. The victor's crown is not something that's inherited, it's something that's earned. It's something that you did for, uh, that you earned. You did something to deserve the victor's crown. You were victorious in something. This could be, uh, could be the Olympics. It could be a, a race. It could be some type of event where you, where you ran and because you were the first to come in, you won the victor's crown. You've won the Stephanus. That's what you want. So the idea there is that the, those, those two are in view when we look at it. And how appropriate is it that Stephen gets the one that's associated with his name? 
where we get the name Stephen. It comes from uh, the word uh, Stephanus, meaning the victor's crown. It's the one that we, that we earn. So we're about to look and read in Scripture that Stephen gave his life for the sake of the gospel and that he earned this crown of life, this Stephanus, uh, when he entered into heaven. And I want us to observe four things about Stephen, four things about Stephen uh, that can be an encouragement to our own faith. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, and let's jump in with key point number one. We're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Key point number one is this, Stephen faithfully served in his church. Stephen faithfully served in his church, and I think that that's something that can be an encouragement to us and something that we can do as well. So let's jump in, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Let's pause just briefly, uh, because the first question you might have is, who are the Hebrews and who are the Hellenists, right? Well, this is actually the first time this term Hellenist has popped up in Scripture. It's used three times in Scripture. This is the first occurrence. It's going to be used two more times in the book of Acts. So who are the Hebrews? Well, the Hebrews, pretty much common. I mean, that's the term that we often use to describe the Jewish people. More specifically, it would be used to refer to the, the Jewish people who lived in Judea. They are people who uh, still use the Hebrew language, thus why they would call them Hebrews. They're still speaking the Hebrew language. They're not they're not necessarily speaking Greek or uh, some other language. They're, they're holding on to uh, the Hebrew language. The Hellenists are Jewish people, but these are Jewish people who live among the Gentiles. So they, they typically have ventured away from uh, Judea. They live among the Gentiles. And as a result, they, many of them have adopted much of the Greek culture and ideas. And this included the Greek language. So they weren't necessarily speaking Hebrew. These were people who spoke Greek. And even though they were Jewish, they were what we would call Hellenized. And what does that mean? Well, it comes from Helen of Troy, uh, from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, you have Helen of Troy and the people, of, uh, the, Greek, the Greeks say that they're all descendants of Helen. So essentially, what they're saying is, that these Jews have been Hellenized. They have been, uh, they have adopted all the cultural thinking uh, that belongs to the Gentiles, that belongs to the Greeks. So let's pick that up. So that's the, there, there's already conflict there, right? So let's pick back up verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests 
were obedient to the faith. Now we'll pause there and, and look at this a little bit. I find it interesting that the, the priests were coming to the Lord. <laughs> How fascinating is that? You know, these are, these are people who you would expect would have been the first ones in line, but they weren't. Uh, so but what we're seeing is the church was growing. And as a result of the growth that they're experiencing, they're experiencing some growing pains. They're experiencing some, some challenges that you would expect along the way. So I want you to notice that the problem that they were facing was of their own making. Here's what I mean by that. The apostles were trying to do everything. They were trying to do everything. They were trying to do it all. They were trying to make sure that they were devoted to, you know, spending time in God's Word, teaching God's Word, praying, serving tables, serving the widows. Doing, they were doing everything. And as a result, they were spread too thin. And they were neglecting things such as prayer and ministry of the Word of God. Now let's stop and let's think about that just for a moment. You remember how we saw a shift when we were in the book of Luke and we saw the attitude of the apostles and what was their constant attitude that Jesus was dealing with? Their constant attitude was, who's going to be the greatest, right? It was, hey, what are we going to do? Hey, I want to sit to his right and his left. And even one, a couple of their mom came, mom came in and was like, hey, can my sons be, be seated next to you? I mean, that's what we're dealing with in the, in, the, in the gospel account of Luke. But then, if you remember, as we started to see the church developing by Acts chapter 2, we see a complete shift, right? We saw a complete shift from that self-centered focus of the disciples to now. They were in one accord in prayer, and they were on the same page with each other, and they were encouraging one another. And now, their ministry of God's Word and their prayer is diminishing. So what, what are we at risk of doing? We're at risk of the apostles going back to their same old uh, mindset of becoming self-centered and self-focused. So we have to remember that. It's, it's prayer that's being neglected, and because the prayer is being neglected, the church should be on red alert, right? The church should be on caution. Uh, this, is, this is dangerous territory because we're neglecting the very thing that united us, the very thing that brought us together and caused us to be selfless. In fact, when structure and ministry come into conflict, and that's really what we're dealing with here, when structure and ministry come into conflict, it is our structure that must change. Here's what I mean by that. You know, if you think about it, uh, too many churches miss the ministry opportunities because they're focused on the structure. And how do I know that? We have a phrase in our churches, right? But we've always done it that way. What is that, what is that referencing? Structure. We've always done it that way. When you say we've always done it that way, what you're essentially saying is our structure is more important than the ministry. We've always done it. This is how we structure. This is how we operate. This is, this is our structure. And because this is our structure and we've always done it this way, that's what's most important. And here we see in Scripture that when those two things come into conflict, your structure 
and your ministry, we need to do what? Restructure. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to have to restructure. They're going to have to figure something out. They're going to have to do something different. Otherwise, ministry suffers. And that's so important. So the question for us is what? Where are we serving? Where are you serving? Each believer should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. When I think about that, this coming fall, we're going to be doing uh, 40 days of missional living. If you've seen our devotions over here, if you don't have one, uh, you can see past years that we've done. We have 40 days of prayer, 40 days of God's word, 40 days of love. And I encourage you to take some of those. It can even help you prepare for 40 days of missional living that we will do this coming September. And in preparation for that, over the course of the summer, we're going to need a number of things in place uh, to be ready for it. We're going to need people to serve. We're going to need small group leaders. We're going to need uh, small group host homes. Uh, we're going to need a number of different uh, roles and different aspects for people to serve. So as we embark on 40 days of missional living. In fact, I would say this, we want 100% participation through serving. And I don't mean 100% participation in just showing up. I don't mean 100% participation in just reading the devotionals. I want every single person in some way serving in the church and having a mission in the world because we're talking about missional living. I've also often said no one should wear two hats until everywhere, everyone has one. And I recognize in a church plant when there's so, so much that needs to get done, everybody, everybody's wearing multiple hats, right? Everybody is. But we have to be careful that we as a church don't get into a habit of just doing everything.